want to preach to you this morning on one simple thought out of verse 4. And I will ask you to stand one last time as I read from the Word of God this morning. Verse 4, chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Let us pray. Father, this morning You are good. Because, Father, You are good all the time. And, Lord, I truly have sensed Your presence here, God, as we have did our best in these feeble bodies of ours and with these feeble minds of ours, Lord, to praise You, God, to thank You for what You have done and who You are. And God, I believe that we do enter into Your presence, Lord, with praise and through the gates with thanksgiving. And this morning, God, I ask now that You would anoint me to preach. Father, I also acknowledge, Lord, that You must anoint our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to understand. And I pray right now, Lord, that Your Spirit would touch each and every individual in this place. And God, this morning, that You would speak to them. And Lord, that You would take the veil off of blinded eyes. Father, that You would give understanding to our hearts. Lord, God, that You would help us to hear what Your Word is trying to tell us about man and how You are mindful of him. I ask this morning, God, that You would save every lost person in this building. God, You are certainly capable of that. God, You are able to do that, Lord, in this morning. I pray there would be not one who came in this place this morning not yet redeemed. God, there would be not one that would leave unsaved. Let today be the day of salvation in this house, God, but above everything, may You simply be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning I want to preach to you a sermon thought. It comes from a book titled, Holding Forth the Word of Life. It is a collection of sermons that I was given as a gift several years ago. And this week as I was reading through that book, I came across this chapter that I just felt I had to share. And I believe this is the week to do it. Psalm 8.4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man? Who am I? Did that question ever run across your mind? You see, we can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I am a husband to my wife, a father to my children, a friend to many of my friends, a pastor to many of you. We can be a lot of different things to different people. But the important question is not who am I to people, but who am I in a relationship with God? Who am I as God sees me? We are living in a day and time of identity crisis. People never really take the time to look at themselves to see who they are. There has always been throughout the ages, even from the beginning of time really, when you look at the rampant sin in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there has always been people who have lost their identity and who they were created to be. But I want to submit to you, there have only been a small hand few of times, if any, that this culture has been at such an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. Our young men are growing up, many of them, without fathers, without any type of figurehead in their life. They're stumbling through college if they make it that far, trying to figure out who am I, why am I here. We've got men dressing like women and women dressing like men. And we are in a time of identity crisis. In a lot of ways, we've just become numbers. To the postman, you are a zip code. To the IRS, you are a social security number. 
If you work at a plant, you're a clock number. If you're hospitalized, you're a room number. And in a lot of ways, we have lost our identity. We have become more or less lost in the numbers. But can I tell you this morning that in the eyes of God, you are not a number. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You are distinct how you are. God has made you, and you're the only one of you that He has ever made. You are important to Him. And in the eyes of God, you are far more than just a number. But you are somebody that He was willing to die for, that He might have a relationship with you. You are important in the eyes of God. Even Moses, the great leader in Exodus chapter 3, when God said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses said, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And who am I that I should lead the people of Israel out of slavery? Several years ago, President Johnson's daughter married into the Catholic Church and someone asked her why she did this. She replied, quote, I am trying to find myself. I don't know who I am. I am trying to find a purpose in life. And I thought this may be the answer. Here is the daughter of the most powerful man on earth at the time saying, Who am I? I am trying to find myself. Where did I come from? Where am I going? And why in the world am I here? Can I tell you this morning that we'll never have peace, not in our mind, not in our hearts, until we can finally and completely answer the question, who am I? What am I? What is man, Lord, that you are mindful of him? With that in mind this morning, I want to share with you what is man. First of all, man is a created being. God says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This morning, first and foremost, we have to start with the reality that man is a created being. We can argue about the time span of the earth and how long the earth has been here, but friends, there is one thing we cannot argue about, and that is that man is created. I will reject till the day I die the flawed theology that through some process of theistic evolution that we emerge into what we are now out of some primordial soup with a, with a slidge of life in it. We were created by God. It is that simple and we must stand on that and we must believe that and we must know that God has said He created us. Out of the dust of the ground. I'll deal with dust later in this sermon if God will so allow. But we were created according to God out of the dust of the ground. Not out of some collision of two random life forms floating through space that hit each other going billions of miles an hour and then created this thing and all of a sudden we evolved from a fish to a monkey to a, to a man. He says we are created out of what? The dust. That's what we are created out of. Now you are a created being. What is man that you are mindful of him? We must start first and foremost with the reality that we are created by God. And I want to submit to you, if we are created by God, then our purpose and our purpose alone comes from our Creator. We are created for a reason. He created us. Not only is man created, but he is created different from all the rest of the animals. God gave man dominion over all the animals of the earth. You see, man is God's favorite and most prized of all creation. 
So much so that God would send His Son to die for us that we might be saved. He didn't do that for any other animals. He didn't do that for any of His other creation. But He loved us so much that even though we sinned, even though man fell, even though we were separated from God, His love for His creation of man drove His Son to leave the splendor of heaven and come to this earth and live for 33 years the perfect blameless life and then die on Calvary's cross, be buried in a borrowed tomb, raised again on the third day, so that we might be saved. We, man, is God's most prized of all creation. Which also tells us this, that man was created to have a relationship with God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now listen to this next sentence. You, my friends, are created beings. All things were created through Him and for Him. As a created being, man is created for God. Do you understand that is your ultimate divine purpose in this life. You're created for Him. He loves you. He loves you with a perfect love. He has a divine plan for your life. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. I don't care how you did or did not come into this world. You are not a mistake. God is the giver of life. And He loves you with a perfect love and you were created for Him. Your main purpose is for Him. And when we understand that and we grab a hold of that, I'm telling you, it'll change the way that you're a husband. It'll change the way that you're a wife. It'll make you a better dad. It'll make you a better mom. It'll make you a better anything that you are when you first and foremost understand that primarily your purpose is for Him and to bring glory to His name. So first of all, man is a created being. But not only is man a created being, man is also an eternal being. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. If your Bible says a living being, it should say soul. The word is found 753 times and 475 times it's translated soul. 117 times it's translated life. You are a soul. You are not a body that has a soul. You are a soul that has a body. You see, your body is eventually going to go back to the dust that it came from. It will return to what it was. But you will live forever. You are an eternal being. God, help us to hear this morning the Word of God. You're going to live forever. Whether you believe it or not, and whether you like it or not, you are a soul, and you have a body, but one day your body will be put off, and your soul will go to the place that it will be forever and ever and ever and ever. The body that you live in right now is so temporary that the Apostle Peter called it his tent. You know how temporary a tent is? It's something you set up if you're going to stay overnight, maybe a week at the most. He didn't even refer to this body as a house. And when you understand the the magnitude of eternity and what forever and ever is, you begin to realize that the Word of God knows what it's speaking about when it says that this life is but a breath. It's but a vapor. It is here one day and gone tomorrow. So it is with your body. But your soul lives forever. Can I ask you the question this morning? Where are you going forever? Where are you going forever? Because you're going somewhere. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Those are the only two final destinations for the soul of man. 
What is man, O Lord, that You are mindful of him? Man is a created being, but he is also an eternal being. Your body will return to what it came from, dust. But your soul never dies. Therefore, you're going to live forever, either in hell or in heaven. Now, this is why Jesus said, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What would it profit you if you had it all, everything this world had to offer? And yet you lost your soul. Jesus said in the same text of Matthew 16, 26, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Men strive, they fight, and they kill one another. They cheat, they steal, and they lie just to get a little bit more of this world. Jesus said, if you had it all, What good would it do you? You see, King Solomon became the wealthiest man this world has ever known. It has been said of Solomon that he was so wealthy that if he wanted to, he could hire Bill Gates to cut his lawn. That there's never been another man in all of the world whose wealth compared to that of Solomon. And after Solomon had it all, everything that this world could ever possibly hand a man. He said this of it all. All of it. All of it is vanity and vexation. Vanity and vexation. Why? Because man is an eternal soul. And until you understand that, and you embrace who you are, you will waste your life chasing after the things of this world that you're only going to hold for at the most. At the most, you'll keep it for one breath. And when that breath is breathed out and your life is no more and your life comes to be exactly as God said it would, nothing but a vapor, all that you've tried to fill yourself with, all that you've tried to taste, all that you've tried to grab a hold of this, of this world will slip out of your hands and you will find that it does not satisfy. Because the only thing that can satisfy your soul is a relationship with the Creator of your soul. You were made by Him and for Him. It doesn't matter how much of this world you may own. It won't do you any good. Because death is going to knock on your door just as it does on the door of everyone else. You see, this is the reason that the worth of a man's soul is immeasurable. Jesus said, if you had the whole world, what would it matter if you lost your own soul? I, think about the statement with me. I just want to spend a few brief moments on it. Because... Jesus knows what He's saying. He is the Son of God. Part of the triune Godhead from the beginning of time He existed. A man who was fully God and fully man at the same time, possessing the wisdom of God. It was not by accident that He said, what would it matter if you gained the whole world and lost your own soul? When we think about wealth, Let's say you think about some of the wealthiest men on earth. We've got Donald Trump and Bill Gates and a few others, George Soros, some of the wealthiest people that we know of in our culture here in America. You take all of their wealth and you combine it together compared to all the wealth of the world and it's amazingly small, less than 1%. But Jesus said, say that you took everything that they had, all of their wealth, and then you also possess the earth, all the gold, all the precious metals, all the rubies, everything in it. If you had the whole world, he said it wouldn't be worth your soul. I cannot tell you this morning how important the worth is of a soul. I pray that God will help you to hear this morning as I'm preaching when you understand how valuable you are to Him.
He created the heavens and the earth. This is his. This is the. This is the prized planet. This is an amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, you look at all the stars. You look at the moon. You look at the sun. This is without any question the prized planet where God said, here I will place life and here I will make man and here I will make creation. And He spoke and He created all that we know in six days and He took all of that and then He rested on the seventh day and God says, all that I've done, all that I've created, it's not as much value as your soul. One soul. That's how important you are to God this morning. By the way, church, brothers and sisters of Christ, this is why we need to be reaching for souls. This is the absolute supreme ministry of the church to be fishers of men, to be reaching out to souls and trying to offer them the life-giving salvation that comes from none other except Jesus Christ. We could have the greatest buildings. We could have the greatest uh, music equipment. We could have the greatest everything that you could ever possibly be. We could have 15 buses that run nonstop and run thousands of people. But if we're not winning souls, it's all for nothing. That's why He came and died. His love for the soul of man. But see, you're an eternal soul. You're going to live forever. Notice Jesus didn't ask, what shall a man take? But instead, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen to me now. Judas sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Esau sold out for a bowl of soup. What are you selling out for today? What is it today that's so important to you that you flippantly go about your soul and your relationship with God and you wonder if you wake up tomorrow, if if you were to stand before God, if, if you'd even make it into heaven, what is it that is so worth it to you that you would dangle your soul over the flames of hell hoping that today is not the day that you are plunged for an eternity into that awful place? What could possibly be worth your soul. People sell their souls out cheap. They'll sell their soul out for a boyfriend. A girlfriend. Friends. The desire to be popular. They'll compromise their integrity for the purpose of advancing in a business, obtaining more wealth. It is unbelievable what man will sell his soul for when God said it's worth more than the entire world. This morning, what is it that keeps you if you haven't fully given yourself to God? If your soul is not in His hands, what is it that is so worth it to you? It's almost as if Jesus said, what would you give after death comes? And after you meet God face to face, what would you give then in exchange for your soul? You would give anything and everything in this world to have one more opportunity to be saved. You would give everything you could to hear the preacher preach one more gospel sermon and give one more invitation to feel the stirring in your soul and the lump in your throat and the voice of God whispering in your ear, child, won't you come? Friend, you would give anything on that day for one more opportunity. Because you're not only a created being, you are a soul, an eternal being. Third today, here's our problem. Man is a sinful being. I mentioned this last week. It's just kind of been a theme for me. And it came up again last night at 10 o'clock when I was watching the news. You watch the news, it is a depressing thing. I strongly encourage, if you're battling depression, do not watch the news. It won't help. Somebody shot. 
somebody dies, there's a car wreck, there's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy the havoc in our world. It doesn't take one long to look and begin to realize there is a problem. And that problem is a three-letter word called sin. That's what it is. It is the problem. Sin is our problem. It's been the problem since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the fruit which they were told not to eat of. And ever since then, sin has entered into the world. The Bible says through one man, Adam, sin came into this world and it has been death and destruction ever since. The problem is that the wages of sin, what sin costs you, is death. Man is a sinful being. And we are separated from God. It is a tragedy. Because the lover of our souls, the one who is willing to send His Son to die in our stead, our sins separate us from Him. This is why there had to be a substitute. This is why Jesus Christ came. Because He realized that we were unable to pay the penalty ourselves. And He said, I will take your wages, death, and I will nail it to the cross and I will die that death for you. And this morning, there is no name under heaven whereby men might be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And it is there and there alone at the cross of Calvary where if you'll place your faith, God will take your sins and place them, if you will, on the shoulders of His Son that you might be forgiven, that you might be in a relationship with Him. But man is a sinful being. It is a problem that we have. And by the way, we're born sinners. I don't have time this morning and I have no plans on getting into the age of accountability, a theological discussion, but I will tell you this, we're still born sinners. If you don't think that your children are born sinners, put two of them in the bathtub at two years old and you watch the way they treat each other. Do your children instinctively share or do you have to teach them to share? Do they instinctively tell you the truth when they know they're going to get in trouble if they do? instinctively, isn't it amazing? You don't have to teach your children to lie. You don't have to teach them to be deceptive. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to steal. Why? Because they're born sinners. It is a problem that only God can fix. And because man is a sinful being, God also calls him a lost being. In Isaiah 53, 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. God has likened our lost state to that of a lost sheep. Why? Why didn't God say you're like a lost dog? Why didn't God say you're like a lost cat or a lost cow or any other animal? Why did he say that sinners are like lost sheep? I want to submit to you because when a sheep loses its way, it does not have the ability or instinct to find its way back home. Matter of fact, most sheep cannot see further than 15 feet in front of their face. It is amazing. You can take a dog 200 miles away and drop it off, and a lot of times it will find its way back home somehow, some way. My dogs will run away and my wife will wish they'd stay away, but somehow they find their way back home by the morning. Most animals have an instinct how to get where they need to be to get where home is, but not sheep. Once a sheep has strayed away, it is lost and it is hopelessly going to die in that condition unless somebody comes and finds it. You see, that's what Jesus does for us. There's some of you probably here this morning under the sound of my voice. You don't know it, but He's coming after you. And you've been wandering and you've been lost 
and you've needed God to pick you up and take you into His arms and heal you of your sins, forgive you of your sins, change you and take you out of the kingdom of darkness, place you into the kingdom of light. And just like a lost sheep, you didn't know how to get there. You didn't know where God was. You didn't have any idea how to get for your soul the only thing your soul needs, and that is a relationship with God. But this very morning, God is coming after you like a lost sheep and His hands are extended out saying, child, won't you come home? Man is a sinful being. He's a lost being. Not only is he a lost being, but he's a blind being. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age, little g, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan is the God, little g, of this age. And Paul says to the church in Corinth that your eyes have been and your minds have been blinded to the gospel. How true this is. Because if you think about it, if those who had not yet accepted Christ, if those who are still yet in their lost condition, if they could indeed see what is ahead of them, I'm telling you, every church house in America would be packed this morning with sinners weeping and pleading with the pastor, tell me, pastor, what in the world must I do to escape the wrath that lies ahead of me? But they're blind. They have no idea. They go on foolishly thinking that everything's going to be okay and they have not a clue that the only thing that separates them from an eternity of pain and suffering and loneliness and darkness and torture, the only thing between them and that eternal second death is the heartbeat inches below their chest. But they're blind. They have no idea what's ahead of them. How true it is the God of this age has blinded their minds. For I'm telling you, if lost folks knew what was ahead of them, they would flee to God and plead for forgiveness. Not only are they blinded in not knowing what is ahead of them, but they're also blinded about what God is doing now. It's amazing to me. And I've learned to understand that no matter how hard I preach, and no matter how much I pray, and no matter how much I give it the best that I give it, and I pray to God that I have every single time I get up, but God knows my heart. It's amazing to me that none of it really matters unless God opens somebody's eyes and somebody's ears. That's right. I mean, I can take a blind man to a wall. And I can try to explain to him the picture that's on the wall, but no matter how much I explain it, no matter how much I try to draw it out, unless God gives him the sight to see it, he'll never see what I'm talking about. The reality is I get up here every Sunday morning and I preach my heart out and there's a lot of folks that are too blind and too deaf and they they have no idea what I'm talking about. God is moving in our midst and there's folks saying, "What, what in the world is going on? Why in the world is that preacher preaching the way that he preaches? What's he so passionate about? Why in the world does that lady worship the way she worships or that person shouts the way he shouts? Why are these people standing? What's going on in this place? And the reality is that many folks are blind. And not only are they blind to what lies ahead of them, but they can't even see what God is doing. And when God is in the house and He's stirring hearts and He's changing lives and He's saving sinners and He's being glorified through the praise of His saints, they are so blind and they are so deaf that they are clueless as to what is going on. And they leave this place thinking those people are a strange people. What is happening in that house? And they have no idea because the God of this age has blinded their minds. Oh, how desperately 
We need a Holy Ghost move of God to lift the blinders off of our eyes. I'm telling you, I believe that's one of the reasons Jesus healed so many blind people. Because we need heal of our blindness. Man is a created being. He is an eternal being. He is a sinful being. He is a lost being. He is a blind being. But I want to bring us back to our text to the most important part of the sermon this morning. Verse 4, Psalm chapter 8, What is man? That you are mindful of him. I have done my best to tell you what man is. But what blows my mind, I don't understand it. He's still mindful of us. Why would a perfect, holy God be mindful of a people that had turned their backs on Him and spent the majority of their lives cussing Him and living lives that are contrary to His laws and His decrees. I don't understand it, but I know this one thing this morning. He is mindful of us. He thinks of us. He's mindful of you. God is mindful of you. Did you know that He thinks about you? That you're important to Him? See, if you're not careful, you'll allow the way everybody else in this world treats you to dictate to you how you think God thinks of you. And you may have grown up in a lifestyle, you may even be in a place now where most of the people in your life make you feel like you're worthless and that you're not worth the time of day. But I want to tell you something this morning. God is mindful of you. He loves you. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows your conflicts. And He knows this morning the only thing that can satisfy you is the longing of your soul. The only thing that can satisfy you is the life-giving water that comes from the well of Christ alone. And He's mindful of you. He loves you so much that He already died in your stead if you'll just come to Him this morning. Only God could love us after all of this. How much more does this really say about the greatness of God than it does about the depravity of man? I'm not suggesting this morning entirely that it's God's will that man fell. But I know this. The Bible says God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I know that Joseph said to his brothers, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. And I know this one thing. God's willingness to love people like me and you and the the depravity of man. His willingness to love us while we were yet enemies. His willingness to endure the shame and the scorn of the cross. It it, It magnifies His greatness. It magnifies His grace. It tells us that He is bigger than our weaknesses. He is greater than our failures. And friends, this morning, can I tell you that your failures and your infirmities and your weaknesses, they do not define you. There is a God who says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has a plan for your life. He loves you with a perfect love. And He died for you because you are worth dying for in the mind of Him who is mindful of you. God loves us. He's mindful of us. This is really the most, one of the most simple gospel messages that you'll ever hear preached. Man is a sinner who, has a etern- who is an eternal soul that needs to be redeemed by God. And if you want to know who are you, why am I here, where am I going, What is my purpose? You will never find it anywhere except in Christ and in Christ alone. What is man that you are mindful of Him? You see, God is good. God is loving. God is patient. God is merciful. God is gracious. He is the great I Am. 
And if He would love us and pursue us after all that we are, surely we ought to run to Him and plead for mercy in the arms of His amazing and atoning grace. And finally this morning, I've told you what man is. Can I tell you what man can be? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, behold all things have become new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. The good news is this morning, man doesn't have to stay where he is. There is a way out. And it's through Christ Jesus. This morning, you can be a new being if you're not already. The old things pass away and all things become new. It's so difficult to explain spiritual truth. So as I've already said, it's going to take God to take the blinders off. But I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine that lived in Seattle. We were best friends growing up. Um, if you know my testimony, I was a terrible person until I got saved at the age of 20. Convicted criminal, an avid drug user, someone who had absolutely no respect for anybody, not even myself then God changed me when I got saved. I was born again. And I'm telling you, there's no way to really explain the born again experience. It's a spiritual thing. But it is new life. I mean, the old things pass away, all things become new. It's, it's so difficult to explain until you've actually been through it and all of a sudden it, you, you understand the song Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. See, the problem with people in their blindness is they don't realize they're blind. People who are blinded in their minds are so much more foolish than people who are blinded of their eyes. You'll never find a blind man in his eyes arguing with you that he can see. But it's amazing, those who are blinded in their minds are totally oblivious to it. They think they understand. They think they see. They say, stupid. Religious things like, well, you know, religion works for some people. It doesn't work for me. They're all serving the same God. What's the difference between one religion and another religion? One, pe- these people are, are, are uh, you know, um, Buddhists, and these people are Hindus, and these people are Mormons, and these people are Christians, and, and you've got all these different things. And, and the people who are blinded in their mind see everything in this blanket of religion. But I'm telling you, when Jesus Christ touches your heart and He washes you white as snow, and He takes your sins and casts them into the sea of forgetfulness, and places within you the Spirit of God, you will know, my friend, that you are no longer the same person you once were. And you'll finally be able to say, I once was blind, but now I see. A friend of mine was in Seattle, and he had moved out there. When I got saved, I let him know about it. I witnessed every one of my friends that I could. And none of them would pay much attention. But after about two years, this friend of mine called me on the phone. And I knew it was important because we had just moved to Wellington. And we had not been there very long and our phone number was a new phone number and he actually got a hold of me on my phone, on my home phone. So I knew that he did some working to try to get a hold of me. And he said to me, he said, Joplin, I want to be saved. I'm dealing with all this conviction about being a sinner, knowing that I'm not right with God. But here's what he said. And here's what keeps so many people from Christ. He said, but I'm afraid that if I make a decision to serve Christ, that I'm still going to want to do all these things with my old friends and I'm still going to want to party and I'm still going to want to do drugs and I don't want to be a hypocrite and I don't want to go half in and half out. And, and he said, how can I be certain that if I get saved, I'm not going to just 
continue to do all those things. And here's my response to him. His name's Robert Cochran. I said, Robert, it's very difficult for me to explain to you what it's really like when you get saved. But the problem with your thinking is that you don't understand that the old things pass away. That's what God says. That's not what I said. God says that. The old things pass away. All things become new. That's the true born-again experience. I said, Robert, you assume that there's no change internally that takes place when you get saved. And so you're trying to figure out how you're going to live like a saved person with the same mentality you have before you've been born again. And it's confusing. And I said, I don't know any other way to explain it to you, but I told him my testimony. Now listen to me when I tell you this. I fell flat on my face a couple times after I got saved. Flat on my face. I went places I shouldn't go. Put myself around people I shouldn't have been around, but I learned and I got right back up and I kept marching on. But I'll tell you this. This is what I told him. I can't explain it. All I know is this, that when I got saved, I got up and I began to hate the things I once loved. I mean, I hated them with a passion. I began to see sin as the enemy of my soul. And I hated it. I hated drinking. I hated partying. I hated drugs. I hated it. Where before, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I'm telling you, like in the snap of a finger, the very second that God entered into my life, the Spirit of God took up residence in me and changed me from the inside out. And yes, this morning, I still know that there is a dual nature and there is a battle between the flesh and the Spirit. But it is finally, there is a battle once you're saved because the Spirit of God moves in you and it begins to convict you of sins and it begins to speak to your heart. And I told Robert on the phone that day, I said, you'll never really understand what it's going to be like until you truly get saved. And you're just going to have to trust God with that. That God will change you if you're willing to let Him change you. If you're willing to make Him your Lord, He'll come into your life and He'll change you. He'll take up residence in your life. You can be a new being this morning. What is man that you are mindful of him? This morning, God is mindful of you. As our worship team comes, if you haven't come to Christ yet, why don't you do it today? What are you selling your soul out for? See, you'll never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. The longings of your soul can never quit thirsting and hungering so long as you are foolishly trying to feed them with the things of this world. Jesus met a woman at the well. John chapter 4. She was drawing from a well and Jesus told her to get Him some water. And He said to her this, If you knew the water that I had to give, you would ask me. And he told her that the water that he gives, when she drinks of it, she'll never thirst again. Jesus was speaking to who she was, her soul. This morning, have you come to him? Have you found salvation? What is man that he is mindful of us? He's mindful of you. He loves you this morning. And this morning, if you're toying around with your soul, can I plead with you? Quit it. You could gain the whole world. And I don't know what it is that you think you've gained by pushing off your relationship with God and by pushing off your commitment to Him and by refusing to submit to Him and give Him your life. I don't know what it is that you think you're gaining through that, but I'll guarantee you it is certainly not the whole world. And Jesus said, even if you gained the whole world, it would profit you nothing if you lost your soul. What is man that He is mindful of us? Father, move in this place this morning. I've did my best to preach what I believe you had me to preach. Nothing, nothing less. And I ask now that you'd move all across this room. 
And I ask God that you would do that spiritual work of taking the eye, the blinders off of people's minds. God, that you would open their ears to hear. God, I know without any shadow of a doubt, Father, in a congregation this size, there are folks who need to be saved. There are folks who know that they've never been saved. And God, there are several probably that have lived their life in the confusion of wondering, why do I have no real relationship? Why do I have no real desire for Christ? Why do I just go through the motions? Oh, God, this morning, would you open their eyes to see they need to be saved. They need to surrender to you. They need to come to you and repent of their sins and follow after you and find salvation for the longing of their souls. Move all across this room in Jesus' name.